Hello. How are you feeling? We have, in recent years, seen a welcome shift in our attitudes to mental health, helped by the willingness of politicians, celebrities, even members of the royal family, to admit their own struggles. Silences and stigma have been replaced by discussion and understanding. To admit to mental health problems, well, it's almost become a badge of authenticity. Yet whilst we no more think someone with a serious sickness is blameworthy than one with flu, our attitudes to those whose mental illness leads them to act bizarrely, antisocially, even violently, has not tracked our new tolerance. Still in those cases, we respond with incomprehension, horror, condemnation. A society should, it is said, be judged by how it treats its most unfortunate members So isn't it time we tried harder to understand those who have to live with the deepest psychological scars? I suspect that might be the view of my guest on the latest Bridges to the Future. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm honoured to be joined by the forensic psychiatrist and psychotherapist, Dr. Gwen Adshead, co-author with Eileen Horn of The Devil You Know, Stories of Human Cruelty and Compassion. Hi, Gwen. How are you? Hi, Matthew. I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for for joining us and for writing a a really fascinating book. I, I wanted to start, and I hope this doesn't seem at all kind of aggressive, I wanted to start with whether there were any kind of ethical dilemmas in writing the book. One of my favorite jokes from a very, very long time ago was, I remember Private Eye, they were doing a thing of a list of Christmas books you should buy. And they're all spoof books. And one of the spoof books was a reference to Oliver Sacks. And it was Oliver Sacks. And the name of the book was The Man Who Mistook His Patients for a Publishing Opportunity. Which, of course, was a reference to his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. So, just before we get into the book, you open up your casebook. Obviously, you disguise the people, they're anonymous and all of that. But were there for you, are there for you any ethical questions about writing a book which which relies on these individual cases? That's such an interesting question, Matthew. And I love the joke. And how clever of you to be able to do it in words on radio. That sounds fantastic. Eileen and I thought about this a great deal. And I was particularly concerned about it because, of course, I have an ethical and a legal duty of confidentiality towards my patients. And I was also very keen, as you say, not to use the privilege of listening to people who've done terrible things as a kind of entertainment. But I felt so strongly that from everything I've learned over the years, from listening to people who've done terrible things, that I felt that it was important to kind of share that learning with other people. And I felt that that had changed my mind about violent offenders with mental disorders. And I thought it was likely that people might find that material interesting too. Yeah, and it certainly is fascinating. And in terms of the response that you've had to the book because clearly you didn't want to court sensationalism have you been 
satisfied, been pleased with the way in which people have responded to the book? Or have you found that people have wanted to focus on the kind of the more sensational end of it, as it were? Well, I think a bit of both. I think, as you said earlier, it it was a very important part of my collaboration with a professional dramatist and storyteller to create composites. And most people who write as clinicians of any sort do this now. They create composites, really, if you like, complicated mosaics built up of fragments of the people I've seen over the years. You know, I'm talking about you know, I've seen probably over 200 people, at least just over the last 10 years or so. So we can build up composites that way. But we wanted to make sure that we had a range of different kinds of story in the book. But we did begin with somebody who was a repeat killer. And of course, that is a kind of story that people are always interested in. But I think what I've been struck by is the very positive response to the book. A lot of people have said that they have become interested in the backgrounds of people who've done terrible things. And a lot of them have talked about the first story and the last story, which is of a man who actually is not a convicted offender at all, but is in fact a member of the medical profession. So I think that it was important to both me and Eileen to get a spread of different kinds of story. And... Just while we're on this topic, why as a society are we so fascinated by serial killers? There, there can be few phenomena, can there, where there is such a gap between the actual prevalence of something and the amount of time we spend reading about it and watching it. Well, indeed, and you only have to think about, you know, a Midsummer Murder. There's the village where there are repeat killings all the time. And our interest in murder dramatically is, I think, arresting um, in a way. I remember this came up in a therapy group I was running for people who killed somebody close to them. And the men in the group were discussing the fact that there was something about murder on every night. And they found themselves interested in why we should be so interested in, in having dramatic depictions of murder on our television screens. And that's only grown, I think, of course, in the last 10 years. But if I had to hazard a guess, I think I would say that it's about our interest in bogeymen. And it's almost as if, if we can locate our fear in bogeymen, then that will make us feel a bit safer. That if we focus on dangers that really hardly exist at all, then that will distract us from the dangers that might really be around us. The fact that we are most in danger of violence, probably from people that we're close to, and that we have, each of us probably, you know, has the capacity to be cruel in the way that perhaps we'd rather not think about. Yeah, and there's something else that's it's odd, it seems to me, in the kind of the bias of the way media presents things, is that now it's absolutely essential that all detectives are deeply troubled, have had very difficult pasts, have all sorts of skeletons in the cupboard. That's You, you cannot any longer have a detective who has an ordinary family life and just goes out and catches bad people. The backstory, that's part of the dramatic arc now, is the revelation about the troubled and deeply problematic past of our, of our hero. And yet, on the other hand, we're apt to depict our killers as being rather clever people, you know, rather sophisticated people. They're evil, but they're quite functional as they go about their killing. And there's almost a kind of sly admiration for their capacity to, to, to do this. When, of course, in reality, as your book shows, 
most people who end up killing are people who are, are deeply, deeply troubled. These are not people who are kind of masterminds in any sense at all. So that's another kind of strange thing. They're bogeymen, but in a way, they're kind of sanitized in this in the sense that they we make them less troubled than ordinary killers normally are. I think that's right. And I think it says something quite interesting about the development of dramatic narratives, uh, contemporary morality tales. Um, even from the 60s, 50s and 60s, if we think about the cowboy stories that dominated televisions, the, the black hats and the white hats, and there the white hats were good guys, even slightly idealized good guys, who were forever saving people and untouched by bad things, whereas the you know, black hats were very much bad guys. And that all gets, you know, that's a kind of trope that was around for a long time. And I, if you think about the early sort of police procedurals, but also the golden age of detective fiction, when we think about Poirot and Miss Marple, Lord Peter Whimsey, P.D. James, these they will have heroes who are rather idealized in some way, and they are the clever ones. Whereas I think you're right, there has been an interesting shift to make the villains almost like supervillains, and the heroes as if they're struggling in their quest, as if the struggle with evil is perhaps more complicated and more wearying than perhaps was previously described. Mm. I guess Silence of the Lambs is the kind of moment when this shift takes place, really, isn't it? Because there we have the detective who is deeply destabilised and has some of her pathologies exposed by Hannibal Lecter, who is the evil genius, who's, you know, as I say, kind of strangely sophisticated and urbane in his killing. And that that sort of marks this. But anyway, it's really interesting to, it's a different conversation, but it's fascinating the way in which we like our murder served up in ways that reassure us and don't, and don't disturb us. But I think it is interesting to reflect on too, because this is the interesting hinterland or liminal space where fact and fiction meet, because I think these kind of narratives do affect then how people go into looking at real crime and true crime. I think you know, detectives and policemen and prison officers and people like myself are, are quite affected by these stories. And I know that even in my own world, there's still a kind of very belief in the mythology of the hyper-intelligent psychopath that's out there who just wants to you know, rule the world and get away with stuff. Whereas very few of the people we see have anything like that and partly because they you know they are usually people who've experienced a great deal of adversity and are really are not happy or content in themselves and not able to work with other people yes and we'll get into this in in our conversations but this idea of the evil genius does not require us to show any kind of emotional empathy to these people so in some perverse way by admiring them we distance ourselves from them now, I'm not obsessed. I don't want you to think I'm obsessed by fiction, but there is one other point I wanted to raise with you about fiction because it relates very strongly to the book, which is that when people in your line of work are portrayed in fiction, one of the other things that almost always happens, but that very rarely happens, and if it does, it would be profoundly unprofessional, is that the distance between the psychiatrist and the patient is lost. The psychiatrist becomes engaged in ways that are all very inappropriate. 
Talk to me about the challenge that is involved in not doing that, because it's very clear in your book. And one of the really, I thought one of the kind of really powerful things in your book is you talk with such compassion and empathy about these people, but yet it is clear that you always maintain your professional distance. So talk to me about how the challenge of that professional distance. And again, do you have a view on why it is in fiction? Psychiatrists never managed to do this. <laughs> Well, I think because perhaps because it's rather boring yes. to watch somebody obeying the rules. It's also rather boring watching people take their work seriously. And I think a lot of these fictional dramas are mainly about transgression and playing with transgression. And of course, there's a kind of, there's nothing quite sitting back in your sofa with a glass of wine and a bowl of crisps watching somebody else mess it all up and you don't have to engage with it. So I think that there's that about drama anyway, which is the distancing is the entertainment. But I think in my own world, I think I know that I'm part of a system that has deprived men and women of liberty because they've done terrible things. And the work that I do is intimately connected with the justice system. And I want to be part of the justice system. I want to do right by the people I work with, but also by the people that they've hurt and the courts that sent them to either prison or hospital. It's not for me to set myself up as a kind of independent justice process. So I'm allied with the justice process. And I also sincerely believe that the people I work with will have a life that is more enjoyable and meaningful if they can feel more connected with the world that excluded them. And that means standing up for those values and beliefs that are part of the pro-social societies that we live in and enjoy, that give us a kind of safety and security. And one of the interesting things I thought about the book was that as you go through the cases, which are fascinating in, in their own right, is that they you talk about some of the issues that they raise in terms of the justice system and professionalism and your responsibilities. And I thought this was particularly interesting in the final case study of the doctor who reveals to you, and I don't want to kind of spoil the book so people should read it, but reveals to you something, and you're absolutely clear about the fact that he's now revealed something to you which you are going to have to tell the authorities about. And he kind of knows that. And but that was interesting because you brought into that chapter the way in which expectations have changed and the way the rules have changed around the responsibility of a psychiatrist if they have information which is really very important in terms of the safety of other people. That is information that they share. So that discussion about kind of patient confidentiality, I thought was absolutely fascinating. Well, I think what's interesting about the duty of confidentiality is that it has never meant a duty to keep secrets. But the really complicated issue is when and how do you disclose and in what circumstances and who gets to decide. But I don't have any doubt that there is a duty, I think, to share information to prevent harm from coming to others. But the question is, is how you do it. And I always warn all the patients I work with, whether in secure hospitals or in prisons, that if they tell me something that suggests that they might hurt themselves or somebody else, then I'm going to have to do something about that. But I also promise them that I will always tell them what I'm going to do, and I won't go behind their back in doing so. So there's something about trying to model a kind of honesty about the fact that I am interested in helping them not do something dangerous in the future. Yeah, 
No, I thought that was, it was very interesting. Now, I, I'd like to turn in the second half of our conversation, Gwen, if I might, to, to what I derived as, as three messages. There are lots and lots of messages, but the three messages that I kind of took out of the book. So the first one is a point that it would be hard to read a serious book around psychology without coming across, but you make it very, very powerfully, which is the importance of childhood experience and in particular attachment. And the question I wanted to ask you was, given the emphasis that you place on childhood experience and the importance of attachment for children, do you think as a society we're getting better in relation to that or worse? Or what's your kind of a, a sense of, of that? I mean, in some ways, I guess as a man, for example, I would say fathers on the whole now pay a lot more attention to the attachment to their very young children. But maybe that's a superficial view. So what do you think is is, is going on in relation to this vital issue of, of childhood experience and attachment? Well, I think you're right. I think for me, it's a kind of glass half full, half empty scenario. On the one hand, I see people taking childhood experiences much more seriously than they used to. And I see fantastic research, really interesting, really good quality, long-term follow-up studies that are helping us learn about the long-term consequences of childhood adversity, and both the vulnerability factors and the protective factors. Because of course, what's so interesting is it's clear that just having experiencing childhood adversity on its own, say one or two experiences of childhood adversity, don't necessarily put you at risk for later either mental health problems or even an increased risk of violence. But once you get up to a level of four or more kinds of childhood adversity, that looks as though it significantly increases your risk and puts you in a different category from other people. So that's really interesting. We don't still don't know why that is. But I'm confident that we're going to know more and more because we knew more than where we were 20 years ago. So we have some great research going on out there and we're learning new stuff all the time. But the downside is that I don't think it's translating into practice on the ground, or at least when it is, it's done in a very piecemeal, patchy kind of way. And this, I think, is for two reasons. One is because it's a, an enormous project, and it means joining up different groups of workers and professionals, and that's always hard to do. But the other thing is that it's a long-term project, and that just sits very uneasily with politics. It's very difficult to build a program that's going to last 15 years and give everybody who's born in a in a birth cohort a lot of inter, you know, really good quality intervention in their first 1,000 days and then maintain that support for the next 15 or so years. It's really expensive to do that and political operatives have different ideas about this and what they want to spend money on. So it's a, for me, it's a kind of half-full, half-empty scenario. I'm really glad that you said that thing about we all will experience adversity as children. I remember being in a, a slightly strange but but yet quite interesting kind of mass collective therapy group for once many, many years ago. And as I say, it was a bit odd. I wouldn't recommend it. But one of the things that was interesting was we were, as a group, asked to think of three things. One was a moment in our early childhood when we suddenly felt frightened a moment in our later childhood when we felt we were different to everybody else, and a moment in our later childhood, in our teenage years, when we thought, hang on, I'm on my own now. 
And the interesting thing was everyone in the room had had those experiences. They, the first one often, you know, being lost in a shop or, or something like that, you know. But so I thought what was interesting about that was there are these moments of pain that all children will experience. And I, I, I sometimes worry a little bit about the modern world that we've, we, we kind of feel that any kind of trauma or upset is bound to scar us for life. But these things are inevitable. But I guess your point is that we, we have to experience these and generally we get through them. But it's when they pile on top of each other more and more that that problems are most likely to occur. And when there's an absence of protective factors. Mm, So let's say if you're a child who's being raised in a household where both parents have serious addiction problems, both parents have convictions for violence and occasionally go to prison, both parents are involved in serious intimate partner violence with each other, which you witness all the time, and both parents struggle to pay attention to you, whether emotionally or materially, you've just experienced four kinds of serious childhood adversity without anybody laying a finger on you. And that scenario could go on for a long time, but there isn't any positive adult inputs to repair that or add an alternative perspective. And often in the stories of people who've survived childhood adversity, and I'm privileged to meet people often and hear their stories, particularly when I'm doing reports for the for courts. And one of the things I always explore is, was there anybody positive, any positive adults in your life, anybody that you felt that you could go to? And the people who do better tend to be the people who've got at least one adult who they felt they could go to, felt saw them or understood them as people. And I, the thing that I'm amazed by is how resilient humans are and human children in particular, can put up with a great deal if there's just one person with two people there. Yes, it puts me in mind of that wonderful line from Freud when he was asked, why do grandparents and grandchildren get on so well? And he said, because they share a common enemy. And I think it's quite (laughs) often, isn't it? It's the grandparents or the uncles or the aunts that give some kind of somebody who's, who's outside the drama of the home and gives that stability. So that was one theme, the importance of childhood experience and, and attachment and how in almost all the cases of people who were very distressed that you dealt with, you, you could see those difficulties, the adversity and the lack of protective factors. Let, let's move to another theme, which is the theme of thinking about thinking. So I, I just read your book and I went out with a friend whose parents had been, you know, I think, suffered themselves and had a very difficult, quite painful childhood and and she was saying to me that she was worried i was talking to her about whether she would have children and she was said she was just so worried about repeating the pain of her own childhood and because i'd read your book when i said to her look it seems to me the fact that you can describe that the fact that you can see it in yourself so that that thinking about thinking as it were that is a very strong protective factor. And I, I thought in many of your cases, there was a moment with people with whom you were finding it really hard to communicate. And there's a moment of insight. There's that moment of self-awareness, which is the chink of light from which things start to open up. So was I was I right to say to my friend that that an awareness of what she'd been through, an awareness of the dangers, was is itself a, a protective factor? 
I think it is protective. And I also think, as you say, that it's a spark of life. It's a good place to start. And while I would never want to say to anybody, you know, because you've had this kind of painful experience, that means you'll do it with your own children. I think that just being aware of that means that you're curious that you might be able to be curious about that. And also you can explore people's anxieties about that. What is it that your friend was worried about? What is it that she thinks she might take into the next generation? And I think having that kind of curiosity about that and that awareness that it's possible to be affected by experiences without always consciously knowing about it, I think is also important. And what I find is that a lot of people who are violence perpetrators are simply really not in touch with their own minds at all, or at least in a very simplistic kind of concrete way. They don't sit down and say to themselves, what am I thinking? Or what was I thinking then? So I agree with you, Matthew. I think there is something very important about that self-reflective function, which is important not only for individuals, but also their relationships with other people. Yeah. And I found that that moment in many of the cases. I remember the the young woman who'd, who'd had her children taken away and things looked very gloomy. And then and then she turned things round. And when you were talking to her, when she had started to turn things round, what you really felt was this sudden blossoming of self-awareness that had taken place in her as a, a consequence of your interventions and other things in her life. And you, and you suddenly thought, well, I, I really think this woman's going to be okay now. Well, and I think she was a lovely example of many women who I've seen who I meet them and they're all angry and everybody it's everybody else's fault, everybody else's problem. But the moment that they can feel safe enough to just explore what might be going on for them, to get curious about how did I end up in this situation? What could possibly be, what could it be in me that could be bringing me to this situation? That means that there's, a, there's an opening for thinking and thinking new thoughts. And if you can think new thoughts, then anything can happen. Anything positive can happen, no matter what the past. So I have seen people who, where therapy has helped people begin to have a new perspective on themselves and their past, and that has made a huge difference. And that brings me to the third theme, which... Again, I thought it was very powerful because one of the charges that is leveled against, I'm a sociologist, that's leveled against sociology or psychology is that all we do is make excuses for people and say, look, it's not your fault that you've done terrible things. You know, you it's because of your terrible childhood, it's because of capitalism or because of oppression of various kinds. And and yet a really strong point in your book is getting people to the point of taking responsibility and moving away from that everyone else's fault. And I thought that was something, again, I wanted to talk to other people about when I read the book. I wanted to say, look, it's really interesting, this process, which is, yes, all about discovering the foundations that have led people to to become very disturbed and do very disturbing things very often. But that does not mean that it's about the denial of responsibility. And indeed, a critical moment in the therapeutic process is the point at which somebody said, no, I did this. In the end, it was me and I did it. And I have to accept that I did it. And and until I accept that I did it, I can't move on. Yeah, because you can't, you can't be located in the social world with your feet based in reality, unless you can own your agency and own what you've done and own the part of you that wanted that to happen. 
And it's only by being able to own the part of you that wanted something terrible to happen. And that, of course, is painful and shameful and difficult for all of us to own when we've done things we're not happy about, we're ashamed of. But when you own it, you then have a chance to look at yourself as somebody who has the agency to make changes, to have new thoughts, to take up new positions. And you can see the world from the perspective of someone who has agency, as opposed to someone who is just the passive recipient of fate or life. And I think that this is borne out by some very important work on desistance in offenders, that those offenders who manage to give up offending are those who say, you know what, it was me. But now I know that, I can know what to do to avoid making those choices again. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it put me in mind one of my favourite quotes, which was from the American author James Baldwin, who who said, people can cope with almost anything once they know where reality is. And a lot of times in your book, I was reminded of that wonderful line. Now, to end, Gwen, I want to move back again from the book to what's going on in society and ask you about kind of two ends of the spectrum of things at the moment. So the first is, we have seen this very welcome destigmatizing of mental illness. And along with that, we've also seen a huge rise in the number of people wanting services because they say that they are suffering from various forms of mental distress, mental illness. What do you make of that phenomenon? And do you have any concerns that we are kind of medicalizing society, that we are now attaching pathological labels to everyday unhappiness and anxiety. Is this just a process of society coming to terms with how prevalent mental illness is? Or is there something else going on? What's your what's your view? I find this really difficult, truthfully, because I think there's a bit of both going on. On the one hand, I feel very positive about the fact that people are really taking the psychology of social life seriously. The fact that that I have a mind and I have to use it. And that means getting to grips with my painful emotions and my difficult thoughts and learning how to manage them. And I think that that is more is better understood and better regarded and better accepted than it was 50 years ago. But the trouble is that we don't have the resources at present or we're unwilling to make the resources available to provide the psychological supports that are necessary. And the only way you get them is by acquiring some kind of medical diagnostic label. And some of these diagnostic labels are used in a really sort of blunt and concrete kind of a way, which makes no sense. And so on the one hand, I'm thinking of people who have very significant distress from very obvious sources, like a a traumatic bereavement or something like that. And they go to see, they get referred to mental health services and they say, well, you don't have a mental illness, so off you go. But on the other hand, I've seen people who get labeled as having a disorder when actually they're working, they're having relationships, they're able to do lots of things, but they see themselves as having some kind of dysfunction, which means that they're, they, they're almost like they're seeking a label. And I think that that's interesting because I think it's almost as if there's, as you said in the introduction, there's almost a kind of badge of honor that goes with, I've got this diagnosis. So I think it's a muddled sort of time. I think it has potential for helping people to get more 
sort of psychologically literate and building those self-reflective capacities that I think are really important for being reality-based, that lovely quote. But I also think that I'm not sure if mental health services, as they're currently being provided, are really able to, to do that. Yes, and I think somehow we've got to look more to what we do in communities and networks of friendship to support each other. And there is a danger, as you say, that we've created incentives for people to seek labels. I think it's particularly actually challenging amongst with parents and with children who feel that it's only by getting a label for their child that they'll get extra resource when what it should be is that schools have got the capacity to give extra support without that kind of labeling to to be able to deal with a range of of children with different kind of needs so and i think your answer is i mean i would agree with every word of your answer i think it is a complex picture and we do need more discussion about it because you know i now run an nhs organization and in many parts of the country it just feels as though we're on a, a never ending kind of process of more and more people demanding services and a limited capacity and even if you put more money in, and to be fair to the government, they have poured more money into mental health services, it's never enough because there's so many more people coming through the door. And we've got to think a bit about, you know, obviously part of that is to do with what's happening in society and COVID itself has been a massive challenge to many people's mental well-being. But there is something that we've got to explore here, I think. So I completely agree with you. And then let's turn to the the end of need that your book is more about, which is people who are very disturbed What's the state of play in that area, When How well are services coping with those people? Are they getting what they need? Well, I think when it comes to people who've got frank mental illnesses that have made a very serious, you know, a very obvious contribution to their violence, I think that those people get excellent treatment in our secure psychiatric services. And, you know, it's really important that we we offer that those kind of services because I think we can make a real difference to those people's risk as well as improving their mental health. So that having those services is is worth the, the money. I think what's um, deeply problematic, however, is trying to get mental health improved for prisoners, because the state of our prisons is pretty parlous when it comes to providing psychological therapies. There are pockets of excellent work being done up and down the country. I really want to emphasize this. It's not completely, there's not an absence of psychological therapies in the prisons, but there just isn't enough and there needs to be more. And one of the d- real difficulties we have is that you actually need highly trained and expert people to do this work. It's a bit like doing cardiac surgery on neonates. You really know people who are trained in knowing what they're doing. You can't just take people sort of who are barely out of college or university and plonk them down and let them become forensic psychotherapists. It doesn't work like that. You need highly trained people with good experience. And that takes time to train those people and they're costly to employ which is just as it should be. But it's that kind of difficulty about how you put those services into prisons and how you get the right people in there to help people change their minds for the better, which they really can do if they're given the opportunity. And that's partly to do with the fact that as a society, and this is another theme of your book, we just don't want to acknowledge that most people who do bad things do bad things because they are unhappy and in pain. And poor and yeah. distressed and fearful and and have more in common with us 
than difference that for so many people, I mean, again, coming back to your very first question, one of the reasons that I thought there might be an ethical imperative to, to, to write this book, even if it meant drawing on memories of, of the people I've met, was that, you know, there before the grace of God go I. So many of the people that I meet are not the demonized bogeymen that we were describing at the beginning, but they are people for whom a few things went wrong, but otherwise they're recognizable humans who found, who did something terrible and now have to pay the price. And they rightly have to pay the price. But the question is, is how do we rehabilitate them to have a life afterwards? Well, that's a great point to end our conversations. The Devil You Know, Stories of Human Cruelty and Compassion is a it's a deeply engrossing book. We haven't talked many, much about the cases, but you know, it is a book structured around a series of cases. And as the reader, you become very engaged in those cases. And some of them work out well, and some of them don't work out well. And, and Gwen, one of the virtues of you as a teller of these stories is that sometimes you think what you've done has really worked and you're proud of it. And sometimes you recognize that it's not worked. And that's part of the, the power of the book. So I can strongly recommend it. Gwen, I'd said thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.